most of us enjoy a happy ending or when the good guys win at the end of a story. At least uh, that's true for my wife and I. We, we like happy endings. We like the good guys to win at the end. Well, several years ago, our sons told us that we needed to go see one of these uh, Marvel Avenger movies and said that we would enjoy it. And uh, I kind of had an idea of what to expect, having uh, both of my sons grow up in our home and, and seeing a lot of the, these superhero movies that they enjoyed. So I, I expected it to start out, the bad guys do something bad, that's what bad guys do. And then the good guys would try to uh, find out what happened and, and try to defeat the bad guys. And it would seem like it would be impossible for the bad guy or the good guys rather to win. But somewhere near the end, there would be some genius idea that they would come up with and they would beat the bad guys and the good guys would win. So we went to this movie and we watched it for, uh, I don't know, over two hours. And when we got to the end of this movie, um, half of the good guys were disintegrated and the other half were beaten and in disarray. And we kept watching because we're like, well, we know these, these movies, sometimes they have scenes at the end. And so maybe the good, the good guys come out there. But no, no, they did not. So we're walking out and my wife turns to me and says, I cannot believe you took me to this movie. And I said to her, it was your sons, your sons had us come to this movie. Well, it was a great marketing plan because we found out that if you wanted the happy ending, you had to go back to the next movie and there would be the happy ending after that movie. But that's just the movie and that's where the good guys usually win. What about real life? When I was a young man, our church used to sing the following song. I found the happy side of life. I found the happy side of life. With Jesus as my savior, I found the way. Rolling along, singing a song, each and every happy day, I found the happy side of life. Yet far, far too many of us have experienced days in our lives that are far from the happy side of life, far from rolling along, singing a song. And you might say, well, that's just a song. And that would be true. But what about God's word? It's interesting, there are several passages that speak something similar to what the prophet Nahum said in Nahum chapter one, verse seven. When the prophet said, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, he knows those who take refuge in him. And it appears Asaph was very much aware of these kinds of passages in scripture with what scripture he had at that time. And he says so in the beginning of this Psalm in verses one and two, he says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But notice what he says in verse two. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling 
My steps had almost slipped. So what happens when what we see or experience doesn't seem to match up to God's word, especially when it comes to talking about God being good or God being just. What are we to make of this? This is what Asaph was dealing with. He was a renowned leader in worship in the temple, wrote many songs for the people of God to sing in their worship. And yet he's confessing here that he came very cloud, uh, he, he, he had doubts and he, he came very close to slipping, to stumbling when it came to thinking about the notion that God is good or that God is just. So what led to his doubt? Well, he tells us here actually in verse three, Asaph doubted God and he doubted God's goodness. He doubted God's justice because he became envious of the arrogant and the wicked. So that raises another question. What caused him to be envious of the arrogant and the wicked? Well, he tells us this as well. We see it in the last part of verse three through verse five and, and then following. He says here, it's what he saw. What did he see? He said, I looked at the arrogant and the wicked and I saw their prosperity. I saw their good health. I saw their trouble-free lives. And I was envious of them because this is what I saw in them. What's more, he goes on through the following verses and he says, these arrogant and these wicked people, they flaunt their sin and get away with it. They are observably full of pride. They abuse and mistreat others. And, and it's a way of life for them to do this. And they hurt others in order to promote themselves. In verse seven, he says, there's no limit to what they desire. There's no limit to their schemes to get what they want. And from a position of power, they arrogantly threaten and intimidate others. He describes here what we might call a God complex with these people. Making matters worse, he says in verses 10 and 11, that people flock to them. People are drawn to them because they want to hear the things that they say and they want the same things that these arrogant and wicked people have. And so they're drinking all of this in and, and they, they want to be a part of that crowd. And he says that it appears as if God doesn't know what's going on or it appears as if God doesn't care. This is what the arrogant and wicked think. And I think it's really what Asaph was beginning to think as well. So what else led to his doubt in the goodness and justice of God? Well, not only did he see what was going on with the arrogant and the wicked, he looked at himself. At himself. He saw his own situation. And from Asaph's perspective, when he looked at his own life, 
there appeared to be absolutely no profit in serving the Lord. No profit in keeping his life clean, seeking to do God's will. In fact, in verses 13 and 14, he says that it really seems like that life is just a life of pain. And it looks to me, Asaph is saying, as if God is against me and reaching out and, and tweaking me. That's really the idea here he uses. And he says that life every day, it seems like it's being punished by God because I don't live up to what God wants me to be. It is a life of pain and frustration, living a life for God. That's what he was thinking. This is what was going on in his mind. And then he says and admits that he was so embittered that he realized that telling others what he was thinking would only do them harm, which only added to the strife that he was dealing with. Back when I was in seminary, my wife and I had a car that um, had been passed down through her family. She has three sisters and each of her sisters received this car. It was a blue Toyota Camry and her family called it Old Blue. And each of her sisters had this car and each of her sisters ran that car into the ground. And so we're in seminary and after each of her sisters had this car, her dad said, we'd like to give this to you. And we took it because that's how desperate we were. But Old Blue had well over 200,000 miles on her and she uh, was just a mess in a lot of ways. One of the things, she had um, a, um, a problem with the motor with the speedometer and so whenever you got past 20 miles per hour, the speedometer would just start doing this. But that wasn't the worst part because not only would, would it do this, but it would make this sound, ah, just like that the whole time. So if you're going over 20 miles per hour, you've got this and ah, and just that loud as well. It was terrible. And I remember one day driving to school we live in Indiana and I was driving across the Kennedy Bridge and if you know driving from the Indiana side, it kind of has a slope going up, it kind of arches up and Old Blue could barely make 55 miles an hour on just a straight, much less going up a hill on, on, on the flat um, road. So I had to pedal to the metal just to get Old Blue trying to keep up with the traffic and wasn't but trying to do the best I can to not get ran over in the morning traffic. And um, my oldest son, he was about six or seven years old. He's sitting next to me and he, he would often go to school with me um, back in those days. And so he's sitting there. And as we're trying to get up that slope onto the bridge, there's a red sports car that comes from my left and just comes by and swerves right in front of me and goes on. Now, I'd like to say that he cut me off. But Old Blue didn't go fast enough for anybody to cut it off. So that was impossible. But that sports car also had 
Playboy mud flaps on it. And it was obvious with the decor that um, that individual stood for things that I just uh, think are wrong. And so I see this and then I catch out of my, the side of my eye, my son, and he is actually ducking down in the car because he's embarrassed to be seen with me in this car with the speedometer doing ah like this and I'm looking at this and then I'm seeing him. And that's when I could relate to Asaph. By the way, our first year and a half in seminary, we lived in a barn, a real barn, by the way. The tractors were on the first floor. We were on the second floor. I remember one night getting up to go to the bathroom. It was about from here to those stairs right there. And I counted 38 cockroaches on that trip on the way there. My wife used to wash our dishes before we ate and after we ate because of all the cockroaches. And by the way, in the second floor of a barn, living here in the area of Louisville in August, I will tell you it's warm. In fact, it's very warm. It was blazing hot. And we just have a steel, aluminum, aluminum, I think it was a steel roof, but it was just open, That's, we just saw it right there. And we would just bake in the summer as well. And so uh, when I saw that car go past us and I saw my son embarrassed to be with me and Old Blue was being Old Blue, I'm like, God, what is up with this? All we're trying to do here, the whole reason we're here, we're just trying to do what you want us to do. We're just trying to be faithful. We believe you called us here, so we're here. And we're trying to do the best we can to be faithful to you and serve you. This just doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. And so I had kind of what I call an Asaph moment at that time. But Asaph, notice what he said earlier on in verse Two, he says that his feet came close to stumbling and his steps had almost slipped. So he didn't stumble and he didn't slip. He just almost stumbled and slipped. So how is it, what, what kept Asaph's feet from stumbling and his steps from slipping? Well, Asaph kept his feet from stumbling and his steps from slipping when he went to the right place. Look at verse 16. When I pondered to understand this, I was troubled in my sight until I came to the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. It was when he came to the place of the Lord's sanctuary where there was the worship of the people of God, of the Lord God. And there was the proclamation and reading of God's word. It was there that he began to find some resolution to this spiritual crisis he was going through. And what we see here is he saw the arrogant and he saw himself and it was problematic. And I think what we see here is that 
What Asaph had is the same thing that we often can have. And that is we often have a perception problem and a perspective problem. A perception problem and a perspective problem. What was his perception? Well, what is the perception problem? The perception problem really is this. We think, tend to think, that we're able to perceive everything going on in the world and everything concerning God and everything concerning ourselves. We really think that what we see is everything that's going on. And we think that what we see, we understand everything that we see. And the truth is, what we see is not everything that's going on, and we rarely fully understand what we do see. And our perception of things is so much smaller I can't make small enough a space of how much we truly perceive in comparison to what God perceives and what God is doing. And yet we have just the, the audacity to think that what we see, we understand and we see everything. And so we have a perception problem. Another issue we have is a perspective problem. We need to have an eternal perspective. We need to play what we used to say as when I was a kid, we need to play the long game. Now, I wanted to make sure I clearly expressed what the meaning of playing the long game means. So I went to the greatest resource there is online, and that is the urbandictionary.com, which has the answers to everything. And I found the definition of playing the long game, at least their definition. And this is what it is. Considering the future implications of current choices, thinking ahead, being deliberate and patient. So considering future implications of current choices, thinking ahead, being deliberate and patient. So what are the future implications of the current choices of the arrogant and the wicked. What are they? Well, Asaph says it in verses 19 and 20. He says that the arrogant and the wicked, based on their current choices, are headed for a shocking and sudden destruction. That's what they're headed for. That's their future. What's more, he says they will be forgotten. They're headed for a shocking, sudden destruction and they will be forgotten. So what are the future implications of our own current choices? To take our eyes off of the Lord and to focus instead on others or to focus on ourselves. What are the future implications of these current choices? Well, we see this again with Asaph. He says, we begin to doubt God and his word and we become sour and bitter about life. What's more, he says, we no longer think clearly. We're like animals with no understanding. So when we start to focus our attention on everything around us and the people around us, especially the arrogant and the wicked, 
and we begin to focus on ourselves and our own situation, he says we become embittered and we become ignorant like animals, lacking any understanding. This is what we become. And it's interesting because that's exactly what Asaph had done. If you look from verses two through 15, the first part of this Psalm, you'll see that God is not mentioned by Asaph at all. God is mentioned by the, the arrogant and the wicked when they say, where is God? Does God even know what we're doing? But Asaph doesn't even mention God. He's not even looking to God, not even considering God as he contemplates these things. And it led to his bitterness and it led to his ignorance. So what are the implications when we choose to look to the Lord? And this is what he finally does. And we see this beginning with verse 23. We see he recognizes that those who belong to the Lord are with the Lord. Those who belong to the Lord are with him. What's more, we recognize that the Lord has taken hold of our hand, that he's with us. I think about this mentioning my sons when they were little guys, we might would go to Walmart and we'd get out of our car and there'd be all sorts of people running around and cars going every which direction. And I would tell my sons, I want you to hold my hand. And they're kind of going off their way and I would reach and take their hand. Why? Because I wanted to make sure they were safe. And that is what Asaph is saying about our God. He has our right hand. He is the one who is protecting us. He is the one who is looking out for his children. Also, we see in verse 24 that those that turn their eyes to the Lord recognize the Lord's counsel, recognize that his word guides us, that he gives us what we need in his word for life and how we are to live it. Also, the implications for those who choose to look to the Lord is to recognize that the end of our lives on this earth will end with the Lord taking us home to glory. Taking us home to glory. Talking about our perception problem. I'm reminded standing here of a little over 13 years ago, standing at a podium in a church much like this. And there being a casket here in front of me. And it was a casket that had the body of my father in it. And I remember saying to that crowd that day that you may look at this casket and you may think that my dad is dead. But let me tell you, he is very much alive because he is with his Lord. And the perception may be that he's dead. Public perception may be that he's dead, but that's just not true. 
And many times we listen to our culture today that would tell us perception is reality. Let me tell you, that's a lie if that perception is leading us to think contrary to God's word. And the world would have us think that whatever we think or whatever we believe we see, it must be true. That is not true. And so what we see here is he recognizes that the Lord with his word is going to guide him. And when it comes to the end of his days on this earth, the Lord is going to take him to glory to be with him. And that is the truth. When we take our eyes off of others and take our eyes off of ourselves and we look to the Lord, we see as Asaph saw in verse 25, that the Lord is our greatest treasure. He is the one of greatest value. And we recognize as in verse 26 that we are weak, but we also recognize that the Lord is our strength. And in him, we have everything we need. Also, when we take our eyes off of others and take our eyes off of ourselves, we recognize the foolishness of being envious of unbelievers. There's no good reason, no logical reason, no rational kind of reason that the people of God should ever be envious of unbelievers. We should never be envious of the arrogant and the wicked. So what is the declaration of those who trust God is good and just? Well, our declaration should be the same declaration that we see with Asaph. Look at verse 28. He says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. When we go into the Lord's sanctuary and we worship him with the people of God, and when we are in God's word and God's word is, is taught to us and we listen to the Lord speak to us through the work of his word and the moving of the Holy Spirit. He opens our eyes to this truth that our greatest value, our greatest treasure, the greatest thing that can ever be is that God is near to his people. He is near to us and we are near to him. And for this reason, we can take refuge in him. And when we do, we will not be disappointed. And when we bask in the nearness of our God and we take refuge in him and put our trust in him, 
it is then we cannot but help but tell others of the wonderful things that he has done. And that is what Asaph did. May it be when we're tempted to take our eyes off of our Lord and to look at the things of this world and to think that looks good to me, that looks better to me than what is happening in my life. Or when we're tempted to look at ourselves and, and see the difficulties that are there and the frustrations that are there. Let us take our eyes and look to Christ. And let us realize that the one who said, I will never leave you or forsake you is with us and his nearness. There is nothing that compares to the value of that. And his being our refuge, there is nothing that compares to his protection and his provision for us. And let us proclaim this wonderful God who has saved us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. I thank you for Asaph and what you did in his life. Lord, do you realize that we are weak and we often in our weakness take our eyes off of you and we look to others and we look to ourselves and in our arrogance we think that we perceive the whole truth of the matter when in truth we only truly perceive and have understanding when we look to you and listen to you and your word to us. Father, may it be that we would be like Asaph, that we would look to you and realize that your nearness is our good, that we can be confident in you who, are, who, who is our refuge and that we can tell others of what a wonderful Savior we have. And it is in Jesus' name we pray, amen.